What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Andre Alexis read his story, Winham, from the June 20th, 2022 issue of the magazine. Alexis received the Wyndham Campbell Prize in Fiction in 2017. His novels include Childhood, Fifteen Dogs, and Days by Moonlight, and his story collection, The Night Piece, was published in 2020. Now here's Andre Alexis. Winham. My dad, Robert Ofterhorst, died seven years ago. He was a successful doctor, and for most of his life he divided the world into two categories, what he thought useful, science, and what he thought frivolous, almost everything else. It wasn't that he disdained other things, art for instance, it was that he couldn't see the point of pretending that knowledge, the fruit of science, was comparable to entertainment. For the most part, we were in agreement about this. But he was disappointed when I decided to study math at Amherst. Math was tricky ground for him. It could be useful, but was often frivolous. He saw math as the thin edge of the entertainment wedge, as if, once you engaged with Fermat's last theorem, reality TV was not far behind. I mention Dad's preference for evidence-based reasoning, not because I have any grievances to air. I loved him, whatever our differences, and I never doubted that he loved me. It's just that I'd like it to be clear, from the outset, that my dad was a rational person. That being said, like many serious men, my dad could at times be playful. For instance, when talking about his lifelong fascination with horses, he would point to his, and of course my, family name, Aufterhorst, a German name, though my dad was born in the Caribbean to black Caribbean parents. The name isn't interesting in itself, but Aufterhorst sounds like Aufterhorst, and this homonym allowed dad to suggest that it was inevitable he would own horses. And own horses he did, five in the course of his adult life, and I assumed it had something to do with his playful side when, shortly after buying his fifth and final horse, a nameless gelding that he'd saved from slaughter, he called me into his office at home and asked me to do him a favor, 
Paul, he said, I want you to make me a catalogue of the most famous horses in literature. In literature? I thought you said that literature is useless. It is, mostly, he said, but I've got my reasons. I'll pay you for the trouble. I almost asked if he was joking, but that would have been pointless. My dad could not tell a joke to save his life. The last time I remember him telling one was sometime in the 80s. Three logicians walk into a bar. The barman asks, would all of you like a drink? The first logician says, I don't know. The second one says, I don't know. The third one says, yes. I also recall my mom forbidding him to ever tell jokes again, a ban we both thought necessary and thus forced on him in a kind of intervention. In any event, I was happy to create a catalogue of horses for him. It was the first time he'd asked me to do research, and it pleased me to be useful. Of course, I hadn't realized how exhausting the task would be. Literature is so replete with horses, I could have written a full thesis just to give him a sense of how influential horses have been in the human imagination. Some fifteen years later, I don't remember much about the research I did, save the intense boredom I felt as I combed the poetic Edda for mentions of a horse named Glad, or perused Celtic mythology for stories about Kelpies, demons who take the form of horses. It was a relief back then to write about Fru-Fru and Rocinante, Black Beauty and Cigarette, literary horses I was already familiar with. After I'd listed, indexed, and described hundreds of horses, I was naturally curious about why he'd asked me to do this in the first place. But no reason was forthcoming. He paid me a few dollars and then refused to say anything more about it. I had to settle for the fact that he named his gelding Zan, which I took to be an allusion to Xanthus, one of Achilles's horses. The horse himself offered no clue to Dad's state of mind. Zan was average height, five feet seven from hooves to withers, and average weight, somewhere around a thousand pounds. He was a purebred Frisian with a shiny black coat and a white spot on his forehead in the shape of a lozenge. His flanks rippled at a touch, and his mane was long and thick, because although Dad groomed him, he never dressed Zan's mane or tail. In a word, Zan was unremarkable. What was remarkable was the relationship between Dad and Zan. It was close and grew closer. I was not living at home, that is, in Amherst, at the time. I'd moved to New York to go to grad school at Columbia, so I took in their relationship only at Thanksgivings and Christmases. This means that Dad's closeness to Zan likely seemed more dramatic to me than it did to, say, my mom. She would call me every so often to make sure I had everything I needed, and in the course of our conversations she would mention, for instance, that Dad had had a large, heated, brick-and-mortar barn built for Zan, or that he'd had a pond dug in the field behind our house and had filled it with goldfish because Zan loved fish, apparently, or that he'd walked beside Zan for hours, going around our two square acres even in the rain, or that she'd both seen and heard Dad reading books to the horse. What kind of books? I asked her. Oh, I don't know, sweetie, she answered. Isaac Asimov, mostly. 
On hearing my mom's account of Dad's behavior, I admit I grew anxious. The man she described resembled my father less and less, then not at all. Yet, whenever I returned home, I could see for myself that Dad spent hours with Zan, talking to the horse, walking him around the man-made pond, and reading to him, or was he reading to himself, from Asimov's non-fiction. Further complicating matters was the fact that Dad would not discuss Zan. If he said anything at all, it was that the time he spent with his horse was private. We were free to admire and pet Zan whenever we liked, Mom and I, but he made it clear that their solitude, his and Zan's, was beneficial to and craved by both of them. I thought he was losing his mind, and I began to mourn him from the moment I first saw them, Zan and Dad, walking in their fenced-in emerald world. Dad, laughing at God knows what, as if deep in conversation with the horse. This state of affairs, I thought of it as a decline, went on for eight years, and despite the pain I feel at having lost my dad, I'm now grateful for that time. For one thing, after a while, my mom's story stopped alarming me. It was almost amusing to learn that Dad had ordered an oversized mattress for the horse, that he'd had taps installed in the barn from which Zan could drink fresh water whenever he wanted, that he'd had a library built there, that he'd hooked up a contraption that allowed Zan to listen to music whenever he had trouble sleeping, etc. Those years were good for my mom, too, I believe, her husband was not an invalid. He earned a great living as a doctor, a respected and popular M.D., until he retired. And though she liked having him around, she learned to treasure the time she had for herself, that is, the mornings and evenings when Dad was communing with his horse. Up until my dad's death, my parents' lives were what you would call eccentric but normal. Moreover, this new normal was very like the old one, save that Dad treated his horse with the kind of deference usually reserved for presidents when they are worthy, or potentates. The first of the deaths I'll speak of here was sudden and devastating. It descended on my dad like an Olympian decree, swift and merciless. On a Sunday, he began to feel unwell and went to the hospital in Northampton. We spoke the next day, Monday, in the morning, just before he went in for surgery to drain the uraic acid that had backed up and was poisoning him. He died on the operating table around noon. I think he knew his time had come. His last words to me that morning had been, If I die, Paul, please take care of Zan. You'll have to keep him company. He's very sensitive. It's like Zan's your son, I said. No, not my son exactly, Dad answered. Though I promised to look after the horse and swore I'd do it well, it was at least a week after Dad's death before I was really conscious of anything I did. I was derailed not just by grief, but by the sheer depths of my emotions. I mechanically shoveled feed into Zan's copper trough, leaving mounds of alfalfa and clover in his vicinity. Even following the letter, rather than the spirit, of my promise was difficult, because Zan's barn reminded me so much of my dad. 
the chairs in which he'd sat while talking to Zan, the books on Zan's bookshelves, and Zan himself, whom Dad had clearly loved. It isn't accurate to say that dealing with Zan diverted me from grief. Nothing could have done that. But as I became more conscious of what I was doing, feeding, cleaning, and even occasionally talking to Zan, I found the discipline, the responsibility, and the schedule comforting. I'd been teaching at UMass Amherst for years by the time Dad died, and I was living just off South Pleasant, less than two miles away from my parents' home, off Mill Valley. Every day of the week I would get up at five in the morning and spend two hours with Zan. On weekday evenings around six, earlier on weekends, I'd go back to feed Zan supper, to keep him company a while, and to spend time with my mom, watching the Nollywood films she consumes. I liked knowing where I would or should be at these times, and I began to feel at ease in Zan's company. I had never shared my dad's fascination with horses. In fact, I'd disliked them ever since I was thrown by one of his mares when I was eleven or twelve. The difference now was that I came to know Zan's personality. He was, in the days after dad's death, even-tempered, gentle, and as quiet as if he had no vocal cords. The other word I would use to describe him, though I'd never have used it before we grew close, is searching. Even in those early days I felt in Zen what I've often felt in my brighter students, an inquisitive nature. Of course, Zan was also physically intimidating, as most horses are. If you've never been around horses, I'm not sure I can convey their heft. It's a density that's as psychological as it is physical, so that one approaches a horse with the idea of its stature as one of its dimensions. I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but one brings a sense of hoarseness to one's encounters with horses. It's possible that this thought was inspired by my research, and I suspect that by having me create a catalogue of literary horses, Dad was trying to prepare me for life with Zan. But none of my thoughts, feelings, or ideas could really have prepared me for the moment when Zan spoke. I'm still surprised at how calm I was when, after we had spent months in each other's company, Zan said, I don't suppose Robert is coming back. I thought, when I heard those words, that I was talking to myself, that I'd finally reached the limits of grief. No, I said, Dad isn't coming back. I don't mean to criticize, said Zan, but you could have told me earlier. I nodded, I think, or made some sign that I understood, but I went on brushing his flanks, and when that was done I left him. I went home and cried again for the loss of my dad. Over the next few days, Zan was his serene and wordless self, and I felt closer to him, amused that my grief had manifested in such a strange way, in my imagining that a horse could articulate my sense of loss. The second time Zan spoke, I was frightened, not by Zan, but by the thought that, grieving or not, I was losing my mind. It was a morning in mid-March, 
Zan and I were walking in the field where clumps of granular snow clung to the ground in unpredictable places. The field was muddy, but it was solid enough if we kept away from the outer edges where we often walked. I was thinking about grass seed, wondering how many bags of Scott's turf builder I'd need, when Zan said, I'd like it if you'd read to me, Paul. His head was near mine but above it. I hadn't seen his mouth and tongue move. So, with what seems in retrospect like incredible sang-froid, I asked Zan to repeat what he'd said. And this he did, his lips moving discreetly, his tongue barely shifting, his breath escaping in a small cloud. Watching him speak was like watching an elephant gracefully pick up a pea. I suppose my sense of wonder overcame my fear. Thinking about the anatomy of a horse, its mouth in particular, I felt it should not have been possible for Zan to produce the sounds he did, as elegantly as he did. The L's in like and Paul and the D's in I'd, you'd, and read, which were distinct from the T in it, were skillfully done. Only the E's in me and read were unusual, as if half-whistled. To be fair, this was likely because of his buck teeth. It should be impossible for you to speak, I said. It's taken a lot of work, he answered. There are words I still can't say properly. That explains your accent, I said. I don't have an accent, said Zan. This was the first of many instances in which I found it impossible to judge his attitude. Had I offended him when I mentioned his accent, or was he teasing me when he denied having one? His face was placid and unchanging. One of his eyes was looking at me until he raised his head and his mane veiled it. We walked on in silence, then, until I remembered his request. What would you like me to read? I asked. One of the most valuable aspects of my time with Zan was that in speaking with him, I understood, truly understood, that words can only hint at what a psyche wants or needs. Although Zan and I spoke often after this moment, I was never certain, despite his use of words, if he possessed great depth or, in fact, any depth at all. This was no doubt because his speaking was without affect, clear, without being expressive. Poetry, he answered. I'd like poetry, or Gertrude Stein. Did Dad read you poetry, I asked? Yes, said Zan, but he preferred science. When I inspected the books in Zan's library, I saw that there were indeed several volumes of poetry. This was unnerving, because it was not easy to imagine my dad buying poetry for himself. In fact, it was like discovering a secret side to him, although, of course, technically speaking, this side of my dad belonged to Zan. What do you like about poetry? I asked. I don't have to think about what it means, he answered. Your father told me it doesn't mean anything. Just the answer Dad would have given, though, for Dad, this would not have been any kind of recommendation. I was left wondering whether Zan actually liked poetry, whether he thought of it as a kind of intriguing chatter, like birdsong, or whether he listened to it in defiance of Dad. It did not occur to me to seek professional help. 
I took solace in my situation, despite knowing how surreal it was. Moreover, I didn't want my time with Zan to end, because it was, in a way, time with my dad. I mean, Zan was a being dad had loved. When I was with him, I felt my dad's personality and, to some extent, his presence, even. But time with Zan was time with dad in another way, too. By his own admission, Zan knew very little about the world. He had been, he said, an outsider all his life. His experience had been of stalls, fields, and tracks. His exposure to other horses had been incidental and not intimate. Dad had often asked him what it was like to be a horse. But if it was true that for Dad, Zan represented a means to understanding another species, it was also true that for Zan, my dad was a road to the human. And Zan, a being at least as observant as my dad, had made an intense study of Robert Ofterhorse, his personality, his habits, his sense of humor. Dad's sense of humor in particular seemed to fascinate Zan. I imagine that after Mom and I discouraged him from telling jokes, Dad needed an outlet. And so... Zan became his, admittedly captive, audience. Here, I'd like to point out that my dad's jokes when told by Zan were still pointless. They were, however, funnier and more unnerving. In fact, it is difficult to convey the range of emotion I felt whenever Zan told me one of dad's jokes. What do you call a reindeer with one eye? No idea. I had, of course, heard it before. It had only ever been slightly funny to me, and that was only because Dad thought it was funny. But looking up at Zan as he told it, watching his lips and tongue move together as if dancing, hearing it in his slightly wobbly voice, I felt a confusion that must have shown on my face. I didn't get it either, said Zan. I explained to him then the play on words that gave the joke its purpose, the play of I, the thing we see with, and I, the pronoun, the complicated pun on no I, dear, and no idea. I understand, Zan said, but did Robert really find this funny? This was one of the most unexpectedly tricky questions I've ever been asked. I assured Zan that some humans do find puns amusing. Beyond that, though, was the question. Why did Robert Alfterhorst find this joke funny? I couldn't think of a clear answer. Dad's love of puns was part of what made him who he was, but the reason for his love was undiscoverable. And at that moment, standing beside Zan, I was struck by the strangeness of my dad's having remembered this joke in particular, and the even stranger fact of his having related it to a horse. Did you like his jokes, I asked. I found them hilarious, said Zan. That is why I remember them. I saw then that in asking me if dad found this joke funny, Zan had been testing me. He'd been trying to discover my sense of humor, not dad's. In fact, in the first year that I knew Zan, I often felt as if I were being tested or observed. Though Zan admitted to liking my dad's sense of humor, 
I never heard him laugh at any of Dad's jokes. He did laugh, though, on occasion, and although I know that what we call laughter encompasses a range of sounds, I expected Zan's to be something like an unhinged whinny or a prolonged neigh, but it was nothing like either of those. It was, in fact, exactly like my dad's laugh, a startling imitation. The first time I heard it was as I read to him from Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. I was reading this at his request. It was apparently a text that he and my dad often read together, one that both found hilarious. Sad though it is to admit, our time together, mine and Zan's, was mostly unremarkable. I mean, I'm aware how unusual it is to spend so many hours talking with a horse. But when, for instance, my mom asked what Zan and I talked about, or rather, what it was that I was saying to the poor horse, I could think of very little to tell her. Not because I was ashamed to talk about my relationship with Zan, but because, as in most relationships, what was actually said was evanescent. The important thing was that we spoke, not what we spoke about as we tried, mutually, I think, to understand each other. Here let me say that I find it funny to think that humans struggle to imagine what aliens might be like when, for all intents and purposes, aliens already share the planet with us. As I came to a better understanding of Zan, some of the questions I had about what alien perception might be were answered. For instance, Zan found sunsets unappealing and assumed that they had some strange physiological effect on humans. He was surprised to learn that we find sunsets aesthetically pleasing and nothing more. For further instance, Zan found ants terrifying, unsure as he was of just how many of them were beneath the surface of the earth. It disturbed him to think that both he and the planet could, at any time, be overrun. As a means of explaining to Zan what a devil might be, my dad had asked him to think of Satan as the essence of ants. And it was in this way that Zan had come to an appreciation of human religion. Our five years together, mine and Zan's, though mostly unperturbed by catastrophe, were among the most memorable I've spent on earth. They leave a residue in my mind that grows in significance as time passes. I do wish I could remember more, though, more of the particulars. Talking to Zan became part of my daily routine, and after a while I stopped being aware that I was talking to a horse. It has always seemed to me that intimacy is oddly timeless. When intimacy exists, it feels as if it had always existed, so that I'm surprised when I think that, for instance, there was a time when I did not know Zan, a time when I did not know the taste of cherries or the sounds of New York. The main problem with my lack of awareness is that now, when I try to remember who Zan was, I find it difficult to describe his personality. He was gentle, but that's a feeling, not a fact. He was witty, another subjective perception. Was Zan really witty, or was he witty for a horse? 
He was kind. Yes, he was. He would ask what was on my mind and pay attention to my concerns. There was nothing I couldn't tell him, and, rarer in my experience, he was not critical. He did not laugh easily, but he wasn't overly serious either. I felt with him not as I felt with my mom or my friends. I felt when I was in Zan's company as if I were privileged to be with someone so noble. Of course, nobility is as difficult to define as any other quality, but it is the word I feel compelled to use when I think of him. I remember the smell of Zan's breath, like sour grass. I remember the smell of Zan's sweat, like rancid meat mixed with hay. I remember the movement of his teeth and tongue as he spoke. I remember the swishing of his tail, deliberate at times, at times random. I remember the frissons that traversed his flanks. I remember his eyes, great and glaucous on either side of his head. There are incidents that I remember too, of course. I remember the moment I realized that my mom had in fact heard Zan speak, had likely heard his voice, often. It was one morning as we were eating breakfast together. Apropos of nothing at all, Mum said, I see you have the same talent as your dad. What talent is that? I asked. Ventriloquism, she answered. I didn't know what to say. But it's strange, she said. Your hoarse voice is the same as your dad's. Did he teach you? Mom, I'm not a ventriloquist. Oh, I see. You are the same as your dad, but Robert was better at it than you, you know. I can see your lips move when you do the horse. I never could with Rob. I remember when one of the neighbors confronted me about my behavior. Now look, he said, your dad was a good guy, but he was a little funny the way he was with that horse. If I didn't know Doc better, I'd have said he and that horse were bunking together. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying your dad was a liberal, but who buys a house for a horse? And now it's looking a little like you're going that way too, and I would feel better. We would all feel better if we knew there wasn't anything funny with you and that horse. I'm not an angry man, not given to violence, but if the neighbor in question hadn't been in his eighties, I'd have hit him. For me for Dad, and for Zan. I remember the first time we walked into town. We took back fields before coming out on South Pleasant, then walked to Amherst Coffee and turned back. I recall this walk not because it was so different from others we would take, but because somewhere past the golf course, Zan stopped for a little while, looked over at the green valley in the distance, and asked, if I knew the number of ants there were likely to be on earth. The moment before he spoke, I'd have sworn he was admiring the landscape. For all my vivid impressions and memorable moments, though, Zan's gradual decline is what has left the deepest mark on me. It is, unfortunately, the thing I can't help remembering. I suspect it began before I noticed it, the moment of noticing transfigures the moments that preceded it. So that, thinking back, the line is slightly blurred. But I began to notice his decline, in part because Zan, who could do a fair imitation of Dad, 
failed while telling one of Dad's worst jokes. Why is it bad to trust atoms? Because they make up everything, I answered. Oh, said Zan, that's right. Not two minutes later, he asked again, Why is it bad to trust atoms? Thinking he had some reason for wanting to say the punchline, I said, Why? But he didn't answer. A minute later, the third time he told the joke, Zan said, Why is it bad to trust fish? He laughed, then said, Because they make everything up. I let this go, thinking it was some kind of meta-humor, Zan's attempt at surrealism, say, and he changed the subject. He began talking about sun flares. I remember this specifically because I wondered if he was making a connection between atoms and flares of the sun. But he wasn't. A few days later, when Zan told me Dad's joke about tuna, I began to trace his confusion. What kind of fish is made of two sodium atoms? Zan asked. Two, nah, I answered. No, he said, tuna make everything up. He had confused one joke with another. But the sad thing was not the misplaced punchline. It was Zan's momentary distress. He was the same Zan. His expression was as unreadable as always. But the feel of him, the energy, was something like embarrassment. One of my mom's favorite sayings came from a philosopher named Epictetus. No great thing comes into being all at once. Dad hated this, of course. He'd bring up the Big Bang and say that the greatest thing of all, the universe, had come into being all at once, before time even. On the balance, Big Bang excluded, I agree with Epictetus. Most great things take time to happen, and so do catastrophes. That was the idea that pursued me as Zan grew less and less like himself. The weeks following his punchline mix-up were more or less normal. I walked with him in the morning, spent time with him when I could. We spoke, as usual, of things that interested us. My dad, the strangeness of earth, the pleasures of a good lawn the way life felt from Zan's perspective, the meaning of God, the meaning of evil, and so on. Jokes, however, were now a source of pain. Zan simply could not tell them properly. He mixed them up or forgot their punchlines or, eventually, lost the sense and rhythm of them. They became a kind of gibberish to him, and he had to ask me, repeatedly, more and more bewildered. Why it is funny when, say, a horse walks into a bar or a dog sits on sandpaper. In fact, I think the only reason he kept telling jokes until he stopped speaking entirely was his slowly fading memory of their meaningfulness. I found this loss particularly difficult. For one thing, Zan's jokes reminded me of Dad, and for another, it was like watching Zan gradually lose his humanity, if that's the right word for it. It is funny in a way that for months I longed for him to succeed at telling jokes that I would have discouraged anyone else from repeating.
But how do you chart the loss of normal, the constant acceptance of declining normals, each lesser than the one before? Though Zen was forgetting jokes or mixing them up, we could still talk about math, for instance. And then one day, we simply couldn't, because numeration left him. All of a sudden, quadratic equations meant nothing to him. After that, we could still talk about the sun, until sunlight, heat, the growth of the soil. None of that meant anything to Zan. These things had been interesting to him, and then they weren't. And his lack of interest was signaled only by his prolonged silence. The subject that held his interest the longest was my dad. But then, somewhere near the end, just before Zan lost language, human language anyway, he asked me, Who is Robert? My dad, I answered, the one who looked after you before me. Oh, yes, he said, but I could tell he didn't remember, and after that we did not speak about that. As strange as it was to discover that Zan could speak, it was stranger still when he stopped. I went out to him one morning, as usual. It was early June, and I greeted him, as always. Good morning, Zan, I said. Did you sleep well? His usual answer was, thank you, yes. Though sometimes he could be more critical. I slept poorly, he'd say. The mattress is lumpy. I would prefer straw. But on this morning, Zan neighed and shook his head. Then he snorted, anxious to go out, it seemed. More than that, he had shit all over the living room and had strewn books about, having bitten them and eaten some of their pages. Is everything all right? I asked. But again, he neighed, making a sound I associated with his unguarded moments, not with our conversations. And... It's putting it mildly to say that I found his behavior disturbing. It was as if I had entered someone's home and been confronted by a farm animal, though Zan had never been that. When I spoke earlier of declining normalcy, I was referring to my sense of Zan's decreasing mental faculties. There had been a physical decline as well, but it wasn't until he stopped speaking that it finally registered with me. I mean, it wasn't until he stopped speaking that I understood that his increasing sleekness, as I described it to my mom, was not a sign of good health. In fact, thinking about it now, I'm ashamed that I could have attributed the gradual protrusion of Zan's ribcage to anything other than decline. By the time I called Dr. Antony, a local vet, Zan had become whatever it is you call a dying creature who was once noble. He was still a horse, I guess, but that designation had never suited him, and although his decline had made him more horse-like, horse still didn't suit him, at least not to my mind, because I could not forget his manner of speaking, his way of being, all the things that had distinguished him from the simply equine. I called the vet, because several weeks before he died, Zan tried to bite me. He'd grown listless. He walked around the field slowly, as if he resented the effort it took, 
and he stopped for long stretches of time, lost in thought or maybe just bewildered. On one of those occasions, when he'd been immobile for twenty minutes or so, I tried to coax him into moving. I spoke to him and stroked his neck. I meant the touch as an act of affection, but Zan turned to me and tried to bite my hand, distractedly snapping in my direction, his teeth clacking. The vet was more worried about me than about Zan. Had he actually managed to bite me, it could have been serious. As far as Dr. Antony was concerned, Zan was old, and there was nothing to be done about that. He advised me to have the animal put down. His intention was to save Zan from suffering, and he offered to do it for me and arranged to have the carcass taken away. Of course, there was no question of allowing Zan to suffer, but neither was there question of letting him be carted away and rendered. I struggled, trying to decide what to do and how to do it. I also struggled with the question of whether I was more upset by Zan's decline or by the fact that he had turned into a, a mere horse. What settled the matter was Zan himself. On a morning three weeks after Dr. Antony's visit, Zan allowed himself to be led from his now more barn-like house. The place smelled of manure, urine, and uneaten feed. Zan followed me to the field and then, when we'd reached its center, refused to move. He lay down in the grass, his mane unkempt, snorting and kicking out whenever I tried to coax him up. His eye on me then was glacial, and I was certain that he was asking for help to put an end to his confusion. I did this the only way I knew how. I shot him and had his body buried in the field where he'd fallen. So another grief, lesser, but still intense, followed the death of my dad. In fact, I think of it as an echo of the grief I felt at Dad's passing, a grief that I had, ironically, begun to overcome right around the time that Zan began his final decline. My mom, of course, felt differently about all of this. As Zan's body was put into the pit I'd had dug in the yard, she said, Well, that's that, at least. What do you mean? I asked. Honestly, you and your dad were obsessed with that horse. I'm glad it's over. I was worried about Robert for years, and now it's been years with you. I forbid you to get another horse while I'm still alive. Her attitude took me by surprise. Not just what she said, but how she said it, with such bitterness. To me, it was as if a close friend had died and I was watching someone spit on his grave. It was only then that I began to wonder about the exact nature of Mom's relationship with Zan, and in the days that followed I found it difficult to speak to her. But then, after Zan's death, I was able to gauge the extent of my isolation and loneliness. I was aware of how much I had given up to walk with him every morning and evening. It was like those times when you're too busy to be sick, your work is too demanding, your nerves too frayed, but as soon as the work lessens and the nerves subside, your body surrenders to illness. 
And so it was that when Zan died I understood at last how alone I had been, and I longed for company. But then, too, you'll recall that at the start of this account I stressed that my dad had prized science and reason above all. He could be a little eccentric in his preference, but it was one of the characteristics that defined him. My mom, who had never easily tolerated his worship of, in her words, reason, the bringer of nightmares, had, through her reaction to Zan's death, firmly drawn a line between herself and Zan, Dad, and me. Or rather, Mom's response had thickened the line that already existed. In a way, this comforted me, suggesting as it did that, in this matter at least, Dad and I had been close. We had shared the knowledge that Zan was extraordinary. That was Andre Alexis reading his story, Wenham. This is his first story in The New Yorker. You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Rachel Kushner reads Come Into the Drawing Room, Doris by Edna O'Brien. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.